you know, our findings are quite narrow and they're very limited. And we would like to see that much more of this kind of work can be done. And, and to do that, you need the data to be made available. You're listening to episode 289 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. When it comes to internet access rates, most of us wish we could pay less and get more. A recent report from the Berkman Klein Center analyzes data from locations where municipal networks and networks in the private sector advertise services in the same areas. The report finds that in most instances, a municipal network option provides annual savings to subscribers at an entry-level tier. In this interview, Christopher talks with one of the authors of the report, David Talbot. David explains the methodology he and his co-authors used in building their database, developing comparisons, and how they came to their conclusions. Due to some of the marketing tools that private providers use to attract new subscribers, the task was more complicated than it sounds. You can download a copy of the report at cyber.harvard.edu, and you can also access our story about the report on muninetworks.org, where we provide a direct link. The report is titled Community-Owned Fiber Networks, Value Leaders in America. Now here's Christopher with David Talbot from the Berkman Klein Center. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, having some fun up here in Minneapolis with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, talking again to David Talbot, a fellow at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. Welcome back to the show, David. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm doing well. I, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about your latest paper. Uh, I know that wasn't just you. We can talk about that in a second. But um, this is a research paper that was published as part of the Responsive Communities Initiative at the Berkman Klein Center there at Harvard. And you looked at pricing. David, you last joined us for episode 162 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast, in which we were talking about a different study, uh, one that was looking at some municipal broadband options in Massachusetts. I hope people will go back and check that out. Uh, but today we're talking about this paper that's called Community Fiber Networks, Value Leaders in America. What were you studying this time? Well, uh, first of all, to your original comment, um, uh, also uh, Danielle Keel and Kira Hissekiel were co-authors on this, did a lot of hard work, uh, Kira managing a database over more than a year, and it was a very difficult process to really keep track of all these numbers. But we were trying to study uh, what broadband, by which we mean service provides at least 25 megabits, download 3 megabits, upload, um, actually costs in the United States and whether municipally owned providers, how their pricing compares to those private competitors. Right. And so they, it's worth just noting at the beginning, and, and we'll get into very briefly, very soon, what the findings were. But um, the database was hard because a lot of pricing is based on a variety of services and kind of all mashed together. So how did you how did you develop a, a way of looking at municipal prices and like Comcast or prices for other ISPs? So you're just looking at the broadband component of the price? Well, there was a, as you would imagine, there was a, a long upfront process to decide how we would go about um, collecting this information, and then a long post-collection process to figure out how to make sense of it. Both of which were, I, I must say, quite challenging. Um, upfront, you will know very well that uh, this information is not comprehensively collected by the FCC. Uh, there is no database out there that the public can go consult to see what broadband costs in the United States. 
There are many key questions that the availability of such data would help answer, uh, such as, you know, what's the connection between adoption and pricing? We know a lot of people don't take service because uh, they can't afford it. Um, what do different pricing levels mean in terms of adoption? Who's doing the adopting and who's left out? Um, how does competition affect pricing? Um, and many other such questions. A lot of those are black boxes. How did we go about this? And quite simply, we went to the websites of the providers. And we started with your list, uh, the ILSR's um, list of, of municipal providers in the United States, which, as you know, the White House itself used in 2015 uh, to tell the public about the existence of these, um, of these community and municipal providers. We started with that list, and we decided to look just at the fiber to the home subset, of which there are about 40, and that's according to your list from 2015 or earlier. It's probably more now. Um, and then we said, okay, we're going to start with these 40 municipal fiber to the home providers. And by the way, it's not only municipal, it's some are owned by other public entities other than municipalities, but that's usually the shorthand. We, we call them community owned as a result of the fact that not all of them are strictly municipally owned, uh, one of many complexities. And then we went to the websites, we collected just on the data, the data plans, what people are charged according to the website. And then we went to the providers in those same communities that are private, such as Comcast, uh, Charter, and others, um, to see what they charge. And to do that, you have to often enter a residential address, which then raises another set of challenges. Well, do we enter residential addresses that we don't normally you're supposed to say, well, this is where I live? So we went into the terms of service and we tried to be respectful of what the terms of service say in terms of, you know, do they expressly prohibit you from just entering an address if you don't live there and so on and so forth, all of which is um, discussed in the study. And I think we'd like to get back to that question of the um, the terms of service. Uh, you are limited in some ways being part of a, a law school. People take <laughs> the law and uh, these sorts of um, terms of service very seriously. Uh, I, we do, we are going to come back to talk about that toward the end. But what was the what was the key finding then after you did all of this methodology? Uh, but the basic findings were that we were able to compare you know providers in 27 of these 40 communities. Um, because the other 13, they fell away for various reasons. Either there wasn't a competitor to the muni or uh, the competitor's terms of service prevent, prevented data collection. And in 23 of the 27, we found that the municipal provider uh, was offering basic broadband service that was less expensive, averaged over four years, than the private competitor. And by basic broadband service, again, we are referring to the service that minimally gets the consumer 25 megabits download three megabits upload. The, if the first service that gave you that was 4010, that was the service we used. If it was 264, that was the service we used. Some of those plans aren't exactly the same, but they're all the same in terms of being the cheapest plan that you can get that gets you broadband, which former chairman Tom Wheeler described as table stakes for 21st century communications. So to sum all of this up, in 23 out of 27 municipalities, where comparisons were possible, the municipal ISP was offering less expensive service, averaged over four years, than the private competitor. You know, the amounts were sizable in some cases. Lafayette, Cibuang, Michigan, Morristown, these are hundreds of dollars a year savings. You know, it could be two, three, up to $600 a year of savings in Lafayette. As you know, private competitors are using teaser or promotional rates 
for the first 12 months or sometimes longer, and then the rates go, go up. So you need to average what people are paying over a period of years to really get a sense of whether people are getting uh, a better or worse value. And we use the four-year um, average. We tried a three-year average in one case, and it only changed the, the outcome by one municipality. Um, so obviously, if people are keeping service for longer than four, five, six, even longer numbers of years, the numbers would get even larger in terms of how much more they're spending on the private competitor versus these municipalities who tend to have fixed prices from from day one. Right. So just to reiterate, uh, the municipalities tended to have the lowest prices. Uh, there were some situations in which uh, they didn't. And uh, generally, I think the margin was still pretty close. Um, and then there was a number of other places in which you weren't able to collect enough data to really make a, a strong case uh, due in, in some cases to the ISPs that, from which you were trying to collect data, denying that data to you. Correct. Um, not denying so much as we did not collect from from a couple of providers, notably AT&T and Verizon, uh, and I think Time Warner Cable, because the terms of service, in our opinion, made it prudent for us to not collect data by entering residential addresses. Right, which, I mean, I there may be some other reason that I cannot think of, but the only reason that I, think I can imagine a big provider putting that language in there is to try and prevent um, anyone from being able to do broad price comparisons. Um, now, I'm not going to ask you to, to speculate on that, but I, I do want to raise the issue for some people who are thinking, wow, um, you know, only 40 municipal networks. Um, now, you were focused on the networks that were providing retail services themselves, right? Correct. That is right. And so it's just for people who are thinking, I thought there was so many more networks. Uh, there are more networks than 40. Um, you know, sometimes people do get lost in all the different options that are available. Uh, but this study does look at the networks uh, that are using uh, the same model that Chattanooga uses, which I say not because they're the, the greatest network ever, but because most people are familiar with them and the fact that they provide service directly and they provide television and TV service as well. Those are the, the networks that we're talking about. And we found pretty impressive results. You know, one of the things that I think people really appreciate was your finding that in general, you could understand and predict municipal pricing better. Am I characterizing that correctly? By predict, you mean when you go to the website, you can see what you'll actually be paying. I think, yes, they're definitely clearer. It just says what the monthly price is, and that's the price. There's no, hey, it's $39.99 for the first 12 months, and then you have to click a button and see what the price is going to be uh, 12 months from now when it's substantially higher than that, and we'll stay that high for many years to come until you bother changing it. Right. Now, you mentioned one particular form of what we might call trickery or obfuscation, but um, there's also others such as the modem rental fee, as uh, the internet recovery fee, the FCC regulatory fee, the I'm bigger than you fee. (laughs) Um, I think you tried to calculate all of those sorts of fees into your pricing model as well, right? Yes. And the database is posted online and you can look at the study and Click the link and go visit Dataverse and, and look at all the data if you care to. But yes, we did our best to see all the fees and um, average them out over the four years so that what we put down as the, the price per year is all in, averaged over four years. So that, that took some doing to get there. Now, I want to ask you if there are any surprises along the way, but let me tell you what my surprise was. 
Um, I've been a part of a few groups that have tried to do this sort of thing and have all walked away and just thrown their hands up in the air and said, ah, it's just, it's too complicated and mind numbing to try and sort all this out. We give up. So my surprise and my congratulations is to you for getting it done and published. Uh, it looks very reputable, incredible to me when I look at it, it, it very reasonable methodology in a very difficult area. So thank you for that. Um, but let me ask you in the, in the course of doing this, did you have any surprises? I think to me the biggest surprise was that this data is simply not available to the public. It's not tracked by any regulator, notably the FCC, but others could conceivably do it. Um, You you think of many other types of industries and products and services, and there's a standard on quantities that you're buying, and there's somebody who knows sort of what it costs and is watching out for that. But it's really anything goes in terms of defining what service you get. I mean, the speeds are all over the map. The bundles are all over the map. The pricing um, is all over the map. The, the ways that the pricing is imposed and the fees and the, the way the rates change after 12 months, it's, it's all over the map and nobody's keeping track of it. That actually was a, was a surprise to me. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, as someone who takes markets seriously and and as someone who cares a lot about markets working um, and thinks it's important for the overall health of the of the economy and then therefore that impacts our quality of life, um, you know, markets don't work without good information. And considering that so much of this information is hidden, um, one wonders, you know, just how seriously to take any claim from any elected official or career appointed staff at the FCC and whatnot, that this is incredibly important for the economy because they sure don't seem to treat it like they think that it is. Well, not from the perspective of, of wanting basic data that you would need to study, a, a, to study what something actually costs and know what it costs and know what's being obtained for, the, for what's been paid. And then being able to study costs or service levels are X, then we see this happening in terms of adoption or in terms of any number of other metrics. Um, you just can't do that if you don't have the data, and the data is, really is not available, and that's why this took us forever to do. I mean, we uh, and we we were almost joining the folks that gave up that you mentioned earlier. Um, you know, really around two years, uh, stopping and starting and trying to draft and figure out how to write this. It was very challenging, and I I really hope that you know our findings are quite narrow and they're very limited, and we would like to see that much more of this kind of work can be done. And and to do that, you need the data to be made available. And that's going to be my response if anybody says, oh, your methods were bad or your findings are wrong. You know, my, my response to that's going to be, well, then let's have the data so we can do better work in the future. Exactly. Yeah. we You did the best you could with what's available. I think it is worth just drawing out what we mentioned earlier, and that's that um, there are some claims that are made for some of the providers, AT&T and Verizon, that um, you'll be violating their terms of service, which under some of the crazier laws that we have in the United States, may or may not be violating the the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, I believe. And so you decided, um, out of an abundance of caution, not to... Uh, report on the, the the charges of those ISPs that asserted those rights. Yes, that's right, Chris. We decided in a couple of cases that the terms of service made it prudent for us to not collect data. For example, AT&T says, your actions on the site can't, quote, contain an impersonation of any person or entity or misrepresentation of an affiliation with a person or entity. It's like, well, does that mean we misrepresented ourselves as owning this house so we didn't collect? Um, and similar for Verizon at, at Time Warner Cable. 
you know, some people are going to say we should have just ignored that and gone ahead, but we did what we did. We wanted to be careful and, and not violate terms of service. Right, and that information is still out there for anyone who seeks the truth. They can go to those sites and build on your database. That's right, they can, and I hope they do. Yes, I hope they do too. We have some ideas of ways that we'd like to see it. I mean, one of the things that I'd like to do is to track back the municipal networks to uh, the prices that they launched with. So for some of them, that might be 15 years ago, and to see how they've changed over time. I suspect you'd find that very few of them have changed um, at all. When we did this for just a subset in Tennessee, I think we found that half of the municipal fiber to the home networks in Tennessee uh, had kept the same rates during that period of time, some of them for more than 10 years. It's just, it's worth noting that, you know, you picked four years. Um, I think if you were to create an actual model of what people are paying, I think you'd find that that over longer periods of time that municipal networks would do even better because you're not factoring in the fact that the, the, the fees are often going up over those periods from the private providers. You might. I mean, again, this is a very interesting question you're proposing, and we don't have the data and we don't know the answers. And that's a very important question to, to have the answer to, to understand broadband adoption and use in the United States and how it affects any number of things and how it plays out among uh, across demographic groups and how it relates to uh, economic development, workforce development, education. It's, these are very important questions to be studying. Well, thank you, David, for coming on to uh, share another study with us. Uh, we think Berkman Klein Center does great work, and I always appreciate your time. Well, thanks very much, Chris, and also thanks again to my uh, co-authors, Kira Keel and Danielle Keel. It was a pleasure working with them. We're, we're glad we could, we could just get the study out because it was a challenge. Thank you. That was Christopher with David Talbot from the Berkman Klein Center discussing his recent report comparing rates between publicly owned networks and private companies. We have transcripts from this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter where the handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research. You can subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle licensed through Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to episode 289 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Music